Welcome to the PEDS-NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm Becky Carson, Clinical Assistant Professor at Catholic University. This week in our Pediatric Primary Care course, we're talking about issues of the upper respiratory tract. Join us today as we discuss how to identify acute illness beyond the classroom. When you're in graduate school, you actually start out spending a majority of your learning time in front of books, computers, articles, all sorts of screens and printed material. You're listening to lectures from your sage and savvy professors about things that they've seen in practice, and they're showing you PowerPoint slides from pictures they snapped during a patient encounter, and of course, they maintained HIPAA compliance and received authorization for use of the photograph. But compared to the time you physically spend with patients, much of your learning takes place away from the bedside. Yet, you have to be able to recognize clinical presentations that you've never seen before when they appear on a multiple choice test in your course and on your board certifying exams. Is this ideal? No, but nothing ever is. Learning is a process that takes time, experience, and skill. So what we faculty are doing is teaching you patterns of recognition, also known as illness scripts, that will help you critically think about patient presentations and apply the book knowledge base you have to the clinical reasoning you must demonstrate in order to master this new role. Did you ever wonder why your lectures are often kept in the same order? First, starting with epidemiology, then moving on to pathophysiology, history, clinical signs and symptoms, then physical exam, and so on. We're providing you with the mental cue cards that you'll use when assessing a patient as you try to identify patterns in their presentation. Knowing these key features can help you take the context clues in a patient encounter and organize your thought based on the knowledge base that you've formed and use it to rule in and rule out similar diagnoses in your differential. Don't worry, Rome was not built in a day. Illness scripts are just one of the building blocks in becoming a provider. You started with a strong basis in your basic biomedical knowledge. Then you gained assessment skills and clinical experience. And now we add this new block so that when you're collecting and analyzing information during your management courses, your clinical reasoning has a strong foundation to stand on its own. Phrased a bit differently, you have to know well before you can recognize sick. Repeating that same physical exam over and over again reinforces these strategies to help you pick up when something is abnormal so that you can use the data to deduce from your mental list of what path of questioning you need to take and where you need to focus your diagnostic studies to help you reach that final diagnosis. But that doesn't come easy. First, you'll need to learn the facts, and then you should start to functionally apply it both in clinical practice and in your coursework and then you remodel it so that you can recognize the pattern inferred by a patient's presentation. That's the hardest part. You're taking the history and presentation and deducing the etiology to make a diagnosis, but you can only do this on a solid ground of baseline knowledge. There's another trick that we use in medical and nursing education when we're developing illness scripts. We use red flag words that grab your attention. Things like strawberry tongue, projectile vomiting, current jelly stool, barky nighttime cough. These are words that describe unique features of an ailment, and in some cases they may be pathognomonic. Kawasaki's disease, pyloric stenosis, intussusception, croup. So that when you see these words written in a word problem or charted in the medical record, they're meant to steer the reader towards a certain diagnosis. 
Educators may also paint the picture using other keywords that help you rule in or rule out based on clinical features. Words like toxic, lethargy, ill-appearing, or even grossly are intended to steer you in a certain direction on the child's overall status and can help you rule in or rule out more emergent acute care diagnoses. A sidebar on the word lethargy. Parents often misuse this word when they mean tired or fatigued if their child is ill. But providers should clarify what the parent means when they hear this in the history and translate it to the HPI correctly. I may even interrupt a parent as soon as I hear it and clarify, do you mean more sleepy than usual or overly tired from their usual routine? Or do you mean that you couldn't wake them? Then I'll say, oh, okay, you meant somnolent or gotcha, you meant fatigued. Lethargy refers to a true altered mental state with a decreased level of consciousness that comes just before obtended. Consciousness is a basic cerebral function that is not easily compromised. Lethargic patients are truly difficult to wake based on some underlying disease process that we need to identify. These patients have a decreased level of consciousness where they might be awakened with difficulty, but are typically not appropriate once aroused, and then may return immediately to that altered state, whereas a child with fever or fatigue might wake up and say, Mama, I don't feel good, or look completely different 30 minutes after an antipyretic. Let's make sure that we're communicating effectively in the medical record and using all the same definitions. Okay, back to illness scripts. We'll tie it all together with our upper respiratory discussion. We knew during the clinical conundrum this week that one of the patients presented would be sick. When you hear about a three-year-old who's febrile, drooling, and in a tripod sniffing position, your brain should go immediately to epiglottitis. Why? Remember that age is the first and possibly most important clinical feature of the clues. You can rule out things that are typical of babies or older children and adolescents like peritonsillar abscess. The fever tells us that this is likely infectious. Then we hear drooling and tripod together with sniffing, meaning a hyperextended neck like you were stopping to smell a rose. With or without any additional clues like strider or toxic appearing, you should think that we're asking a question about upper airway obstruction, with the most classic presentation being epiglottitis. Sure, there are definitely some other items on the differential diagnosis that you don't want to miss. Bacterial tracheitis, foreign body, retropharyngeal abscess, to name a few. And you'll have to figure out what the right answer is based on other context clues. But I can almost guarantee that the question will involve some sort of acknowledgement of the medical emergency involved, the potential airway obstruction, and the importance of avoiding agitation in the child. Students who can cross-reference the various etiologies of infectious versus non-infectious causes of strider in their heads and reason through the remainder of the management by restructuring their clinical and academic experience will undoubtedly become the safest and strongest providers. Yes, the patient with epiglottitis probably was the most acutely worrisome patient of the presentation, but all of you missed a subtle nuance in one of the other patients. A six-week-old with fever and one week of mild URI symptoms that now includes a gasping-like cough. An expert doesn't need any more information than that to know what this illness script is. Do you? I want you to revisit the clinical conundrum next week after exploring the respiratory system more in depth. 
Remember that the respiratory system is one of the most important in pediatrics because there are so many disease processes that affect children. And remember, when you're highlighting red flag words and unwinding illness scripts on dozens of practice questions, that you're doing this for the kids. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.